So last week we saw Mary, pregnant with Jesus, do what people always do when they have good news, and that is, with haste, she went to share it with someone that she loved. Uh, When I was a child, we had a TV, and it had, sticking out of it, a circle of wire, if you can remember such things. And uh, Sven's dad, you might not know him, had a satellite dish, and Sven's dad's sports channel broadcast the Formula One a full three minutes before the BBC could do it over the air. Uh, The BBC had a delay. That way, if some racing driver said a rude word, they could blank it out before it upset the Queen. This is real. And uh, she's too posh for a satellite dish. And uh, many weeks, while me and my family watched the last lap of the race... Sven would ride his bike up and down in the street announcing the results to everybody. Now, Advent, as I've told you, is a penitential season, hence the purple. And I think it is high time for me to confess that I hated his guts. I absolutely loathed him for this. But I think what Luke would observe for us is that with a good result, this is what people do. This is so human to be excited about some news and to share it as loudly as you can. Mary has news. Mary runs, we're told, with haste to share the news. And then last week, what we hear is Elizabeth, filled with the Holy Spirit, does what spiritual people always do, and she confirms to Mary more of what is really going on. And then, as this good news is revealed to Mary, as more light bulbs go on, She responds again in the way that anybody who has received good news responds the good news. She worships. If you cannot receive ordinary news, Ayrton Senna has won uh, the Monaco Grand Prix in 1992, as you doubtless recall. If you can't even uh, get a little bit of good news and keep it quiet, how much more noisy should we be when we receive the good news of Jesus Christ? I want to say if you go to a church and maybe you're visiting one uh, this Christmas time and and everybody's just sort of muttering and going (laughs) during the liturgy and during the hymns, uh, something's wrong, right? Either they've all got Omicron and you should just leave uh, or, or more likely they don't know Jesus. That is the most likely explanation. There's no reason why a believer would look so miserable. Uh, Revelation plus reception equals joy. There's the formula. So in verse 46, Mary erupts into song, as you would expect, and she says this. My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices. It's, It's rather beautiful worship. In form, it reads like a psalm. In uh, feel. It reads like one of those Old Testament baby songs, like the one we just heard from Hannah, strikingly similar in many ways. So it's biblically literate, this response of Mary. It is steeped in biblical tradition. What she says just comes out uh, like, like jazz. What I feel is she's kind of riffing on a biblical theme. It's a good day to have a trumpet, isn't it? I would add, as well as a good jazz musician, as a good theologian, Mary is a brilliant lyricist, rather astonishing lyricist. 
Uh, My soul magnifies the Lord. She says this in the continual present tense, meaning my soul is magnifying the Lord. I am worshipping, and I am going to go on worshipping continually. What I've done is I've entered into a new state of being whereby now my behavior is continually characterized by the activity of worship. Then she switches tense. She says, my spirit rejoices, but that is in the aorist tense, meaning it's a done deal. It's a thing that took place in the past. I've entered into worship, but it is not necessarily closed or completed. It is perfectly plausible that this state that I was in when this thing happened is going to carry on uh, as well. And this new activity of worship, she insinuates with the tense, will likely go on to characterize the rest of my life. So Mary is intelligent. She's schooled somehow. She's inspired. And she is obedient to the will of God. And so rightly over the years, many people have admired Mary for this uh, list of things. But I do want to say Mary is not a superhuman. She's not an angel. She's not a god. She is not to be hailed. That is blasphemy. She's not to be prayed to. And she is not to be invoked in any way at all. We worship God. And Mary says that she needs a savior. She makes this express in verse 48. She says, For he, God, the real God, has looked upon the humble estate of his servant. I am, she says, in my own estate. Nobody. Humble. I'm not special. Really, actually, Mary says, I'm just an incidental side figure in the story of God and nothing more. And yet, she says, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. There's a word reserved for those of royal status. From now on, though I was a nobody, everyone will remember my role in the story of God. In a way, what we've got here is just a mini version of the gospel. This is what God can do for any of us. God never takes special, holy people who have absolutely everything nailed and who have taken their natural talents and then honed them through years of hard work and then lets them just show off to the church how good and holy they really are. That is not how God works. God, you, I hope, will be relieved to hear, is not Simon Cowell. Salvation is not a TV talent show. God takes ordinary people. Sometimes life's losers, and he lifts them up. He elects them to be supremely blessed by his sovereign grace alone. That is the good news. So Mary is just the first person to receive it. She's the first person to get it. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, she says. And then she's also the first person to share it. Almost immediately, Mary, having realized how much God has done for her, stops talking about herself, which people who realize how much God has done for them will do. And then she starts talking about God. And then she starts talking about you. So let's have a look at it. Uh, Please look with me. Uh, what does she say first about God in Luke 1, 49? Well, three things. For he who is mighty, if you have a, a church Bible, you can underline that word mighty and do the next service a favor. He who is mighty has done great things for me. Holy is his name. You can underline that. And verse 50, 
His mercy, underline mercy, is for those who fear him. So Mary shows to us three characteristics of God. One, he's mighty. Two, his name is holy. Three, he has mercy. And this is an amazing trio of things to observe. Because if God is not mighty, then sermon over. We all go home. There's no point in being here. He could be an absolutely charming God. But if he cannot do a thing for us, then we have no hope. A lovely leader who is weak is a waste of space, at best. More likely, a danger. Of course, if he's mighty, but he's not holy, then we still have no hope. That's probably even worse. A strong but unholy God would be a terror, and our job would be to hide from him or appease him. Essentially, that is how all the other religions work. There's a price to pay to keep God or the gods or force or power or whatever on side. So the teaching is this. You keep your head down. You keep your nose clean. You check some boxes or at least you appear to when you think he's looking. And then occasionally you light a candle or you buy a brick campaign or you sacrifice a child and then the God goes away. Of course, if he's both mighty and he's holy, then even then we have no hope. Because then any mistakes on our part, any failing to measure up to his holy standard, is going to leave us facing judgment. And so there's still no hope. So Mary adds a third critical characteristic of God. They have to have the three together in any sound doctrine. And this is a doctrinal statement that she's making, worthy, way better than any human book, because God thought it was so good he put it in his own. He has mercy. God has mercy. Now, some of you know I love old books. I like to see them and, and buy them and, and have them. And you know, Ancient dictionaries are always my favorite things to read, where you take a word that you don't really understand and you see it translated into another word you don't really understand. I love that. And uh, one of the ancient dictionaries says that mercy is goodwill towards the miserable and the afflicted, joined with a desire to help them. It's rather charming, isn't it? That God does not just send out platitudes. You know, oh, that's awful. I feel for you, man. I wish there was something I could do to help. Verse 54 says he does help. He has goodwill towards the miserable and the afflicted, and it is joined with a desire to help them. That's the essence of mercy. God in his mercy sees the trouble that we're in and then intervenes in human affairs in order to put them right, even if the misery that we are in is entirely of our own making, even if it's our fault, which it is, he still steps in. He looks for the wrong sort, and he finds them, and he helps them in order to show them love. Now, that's Mary's sermon. That's Mary's song. It's Mary's testimony. I think this is the teaching that she wants to share Like any good one of any of those things, I think that it is born out of her own personal experience, so it's much more emphatically uh, trustworthy and believable and compelling. And uh, this is what she wants Israel, the whole of her people, to know. Of course, the gospel can also be distorted the other way, though. It's tempting to look at this trio of characteristics and major only on the mercy 
because that's the nice one, right? The mercy is the really nice one. And it's especially popular right now in, in liberal and revisionist churches to say that, well, God is love, which is true. But then we conclude that that's the only characteristic of God that matters, and therefore we can do whatever we like, and he's just always going to be okay with that. Mary's song is brilliant. She says, yeah, he does have mercy. But his mercy is for those who fear him, and it means only those who fear him. God's mercy is only reserved for those who stand in awe of him, for those who belong to him, for those who love him back so much that they trust him with their lives. Not perfectly, clearly, because none of us is perfect, but penitently, purple season, for sure. Advent is not a season of perfection. This is not the time of the year where the church goes, right, we're going to get some stuff fixed. It is a time of penitence. The point of Advent is to prepare for the coming Lord Jesus, to turn back, to to recognize where we've fallen short, and then to place our lives under his. So who is in and who's out? That's, uh, That's my favorite kind of sermon. Goodies and baddies. Who gets it, who doesn't? Uh, Who sees the mightiness and the holiness of God, confesses their inevitable shortcomings before him, and then receives mercy? And who says, no, I'm going to white-knuckle this Christianity thing on my own and make him love me by my own power? Well, verse 51. Here's another trio of characters. Human this time. Verse 51. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. Verse 52, he has brought down the mighty from their thrones. Verse 53, the rich he has sent away empty. Three types of people who, from a human perspective, look as though they've got absolutely everything right. Those with freedom to do what they want, those in charge, those with money. These are the people that most of us think of as blessed. These are the people at the front of the plane. These are the people on the top floor of the office block. They have a corner room and they have a carpet. These are the people that get paid to tweet. And we look up to them. And we want to be like them. What you find is that even in church, frequently, we defer to people like this and we put them in charge because they impress. They're used to getting their own way, and so we say, have some more of your own way. But instead, verse 52 says... Here's another trio of people who really get it. Verse 52. He has exalted those of humble estate. Verse 53. He has filled the hungry with good things. And verse 54. He has helped his servant Israel. Scholar Leon Morris said, The song tells of a complete reversal of human values where admitting that you need help or that you've made a mistake actually becomes the best day of your life. This is a really important message for our town because I think we're very good at success. We're rather great at it. But it's, it's difficult to improve all the time. It's difficult for every generation to be more impressive than the one before. And uh, as a pastor, I think one of the things that I found most commonly amongst the people that I pastor is that a lot of us are burdened by success, by the 
pressure to perform. This has become especially true for our kids, where every social interaction is measured in likes and clicks on the internet, where every single day at school has a grade posted online by the time they get home. So you've been doing your tests at 10 and 11 and 12 by 3.30 when you get home. It's all up there on your iPad for you to see. Did you fail today or did you win? And then as they grow up, at this generation below mine, every aspect of their success is going to be filmed and broadcast and measured. And as Pastor Ben said the other week, there's even an app for that that we can all use, and it's made by PNC or Citibank or whatever. Most of us in this room will do rather well. But all of us in this room will fail at some point. We will all goof something up. I do it for a living. And it'll be measured. It'll be seen. It'll be examined. It'll be posted online. When that happens to you or your kids, you can stay stuck and you can wallow and say, woe is me. Or you can dig yourself out with your own strength and get onto the X factor. Or you can be rescued. Those are the options. And God has been waiting for a moment like that where your human pride has been dented, if not shattered, to reach down and with power and with holiness and with mercy lift you up. A moment where you are humble enough to feel the need for God is the greatest day of your life. So how's he done it? How has God so upset the human order that a bad day could become the best day of your life? Well, part of the brilliance of Mary's song is that he hasn't yet. Not at the moment that she's writing it anyway. He hasn't done anything. There's been no cross, there's been no resurrection, there's been no Pentecost, no ascension, and no return. There's not even been a birth at the point at which she sings. She's using the past tense brilliantly to describe, from her perspective, future events. So faithful is God that the mitosis in her womb and nothing more has now set in motion a salvation plan that is guaranteed. God has been talking about this plan for thousands of years at this point. Verse 55, she observes, this is just as he spoke to our fathers. It's what he told us he would do to Abraham and to his offspring, singular forever. God made a promise long before Mary, long before Mary entered the story. God made a promise to give Abraham a child. And that child, that offspring, would bless all of the nations and draw them in. And then God restates this promise over and over and over again throughout the Old Testament, amplifying it most notably of all to David, his king, that one day this child would be a king as well. Even more outrageously humbled than we are outrageously lifted up. Don Carson once said, In most religions, a meeting with God requires the low to ascend high and sinners to become saints. The Magnificat reverses all protocol and expectations, and God who is high becomes low. John Stott said, For the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God. 
while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. He chose our cross to give us his crown. When that's revealed to you, when you get it, when it clicks, there's no middle way. There's no muttering fudge anymore. You either double down on your sin or you sing. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, you're a God who consistently lifts up the humble. And uh, I think you know full well, Lord Jesus, that being humble is, is so not in, in, in our wheelhouse. So, Father God, I thank you for seasons of Lent and Advent to repent. And as we end... Uh, winter Lenten fast. I thank you, Lord Jesus, that what always awaits is a feast. So, Father, we confess that we have sinned against you. And I just invite you in the room, please, to pick up your bulletins, those of you at home. We turn ahead to the confession at this point, which you'll find on page four. In uh, liturgical churches like ours, the liturgy has a blessing and a curse. The blessing, of course, is that these words go deep and we memorize them, but the curse is that sometimes we gloss over them because we've said them before. So slowly, I'll lead this slowly, and I do invite you to speak to Jesus as, as we say these words. Let's pray together the general confession. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed, by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry, and we humbly repent. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us, that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen.